Hey guys, what's going on? It's Jeff. A quick note before the show begins. The audio from these podcasts mostly come from live video YouTube streams on my channel. They may vary in quality from show to show and reference visual content not described to you, the listener. I'm sorry about that. If you prefer video to go with this audio, head over to youtube.com backslash from us, F-R-U-M-E-S-S for the whole enchilada. Who doesn't like a whole enchilada anyway? Good evening and welcome to another episode of Master From Us Peace Theater. From Us Peace Theater. That sounds better, right? That, that, that rolls off the tongue a lot better. We are on chapter 14 of the Return of the Living Dead novelization by John Russo based on a screenplay by Dan O'Bannon. I can't believe we're almost at the end of the book. Can you believe it? If we had read a chapter a week, we could have really stretched this thing out. But I got to tell you, um, I am looking forward to the completion of this book. Perhaps we will do more in the future. We'll take suggestions. But we're talking like we're at the end. We're not quite at the end yet. So let's let us let us continue on. Um, when we last left off, our paramedics who who got Vietnam vet backstories, they were they were trying to get to the the ambulance so that they could get out of there and you know get better better help for Freddie. I think they were going to take Freddie and Frank to the ER because Freddie and Frank they breathed the 245 trioxin gas and were clinically dead, even though they were conscious conscious. And we got um, a, just a really brutal, scary, terrifying description of how these zombies operate, how it's different from the ones in the movie and also different from the Romero zombies. These zombies, not, they, they want your brains, but they'll eat anything. They'll, they just want to gnaw on something because they're hungry. So they'll gnaw on your flesh and, drink your blood even if even if they're not getting what they need from your brains and they use they use bricks to crack open your skull and it's it's gnarly and unpleasant to say the least um chapter 14 freddy freddy tina cried joy joyously she ran to him as soon as she entered the embalming room with ernie meat and scuzz when she got a look at him up close, the joy melted from her face. Oh, my God, Freddy, what did they do to you? I'm sick, Tina, he whimpered, really terribly sick. Me too, rasped Frank. Tina's eyes darted anxiously back and forth from her boyfriend to her boyfriend's boss. But what do you have, Freddy, she blurted. I've never seen anyone look so awful. You look like... Like, she bit her lip, not daring to say what he looked like. Like sunshine, said Freddie, completing her thought in a mournful, self-pitying whisper. So Russo ties the, I forgot about that. Russo uh, ties us back to sunshine. Freddie's trying to get away from being like sunshine, and he winds up, he winds up ironically being like sunshine as a result. Um, Embalming tables. Embalming tables? This place is something else, cried Scuzz, looking around. One thing, if you're going to croak, you pick the right place, Freddy. They can work on you right here. Talk about <laughs> gallows humor. Meat came up behind Tina and squinted at Freddy and Frank. Man, you look like death warmed over, he said. He drawled. He drawled. Man, you look like death warmed over. Like, why are you wearing such a little earring, man? 
And why you got such a square haircut? Who cares about his hair at a time like this? Who cares about his hair at a time like this? Tina snapped. The ambulance came, Freddie rasped. They're going to take us to the hospital and find out what's wrong with us. Where the hell are the paramedics? Ernie Coltenburner said to Bert Wilson. Bert shrugged and took his hat off and nervously ran his fingers through his red hair. They said they were going to fetch a couple of stretchers. How long ago? asked Ernie. Bert glanced at his watch. I don't know, 10, 15 minutes. Christ, what are they doing? Making the goddamn stretchers? Ernie cried. Gr uh, grimly pursing his lips, grimly pursing his lips, he stared at the embalming room door and his bony face took on a tense, worried expression. They must have split. They ain't coming back, sneered Meat, ever distasteful of the establishment. Chicken shit bastards, Scuzz cursed. Frank and Freddie both groaned des despairingly. Oh, honey, everything's going to be okay, Tina crooned, putting her arm around her boyfriend. Those medics wouldn't just cut out on us. Those medics wouldn't just cut out on us, said Ernie. They're trained to not panic in emergencies. They might be in some kind of trouble out there. I'm going to go have a look. Scuzz and Meat exchanged silent, silent looks that said, man, anybody who bops, <laughs> anybody who bops on out there on his own is a real queeb. Wow, that's real hip, Mr. Rousseau. Mr. Rousseau. Ernie drew his luger from under his belt and flipped the safety catch. Then he threw the door open and raising his arm to shield his eyes against the blinding rain, he stepped out, closing the door behind him. He thought, <clears throat> he thought that it ought to be easier to see even on such a dark, misty and rainy night because the parking lot, because the parking lot lights were on. Then he realized that most of them weren't shining and pointed his gun in front of him. He edged over to one of the lampposts. Something crunched under his feet. Glass. The light had been smashed. No doubt that is what had happened to the others. Ernie felt the sick bile of fear rising in his throat. That's actually terrifying. They're like, we're going to smash the lights so you can't see us so we can uh, uh, attack you. Up till now, the sounds that he had been aware of were mostly that of rain and thunder, but a rising chorus of slurping, moaning and munching sounds suddenly impinged upon his senses. His eyes darted wildly and he spotted a glow that turned out to be the interior light of the ambulance parked with its door hanging open. Ernie hurried towards the glow, but then he heard the chant brains, 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 and realized the devilish voices were directed towards him. Lightning flashed and he saw a corpse looking right up in his eyes with the blood all over its mouth and chin. It was munching on a human arm that still wore a tatter of a white paramedic uniform. The corpse was old and hideous, mostly a skeleton held together by tendons and dried decay skin. Ernie fired his Luger at the corpse. The bullet struck it in the forehead with a loud thwack, causing it to reel backwards, but it didn't fall. Instead, it stared, it started towards Ernie, still carrying its meal of a human arm. Out of the rainy darkness, other corpses advanced, screaming, Brains! 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 Ernie fired at some of them, but the bullets had no effect. Utterly terrified, he bolted and ran for the embalming room door, fumbling in his pocket for the keys. He pounded ferociously on the steel door, even as he tried desperately to insert his key into the slot. The door came open. Bert Wilson, who had unlocked it, 
was nearly bowled over as Ernie herded hurtled into him. When he saw what was coming out of the darkness, he needed no urging to slam the door shut. His fingers shaking badly, Ernie managed to throw the deadbolt just in time. The steel door was shuddering with the demented pounding and screaming outside. Brains, 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 brains. Ernie sagged against the wall, drenched and feeble from terror. He weakly lifted his arm and started at his gun, trying to and stared at his gun, trying to comprehend how it could have proven itself so useless when he needed it. Them things, we told you they was out there, Meat said. You squares never want to believe us, says Scuzz. You always think that if we say something strange, it's because we're on dope. Well, we didn't make those things up. Somebody caused them, and I'd like to know who. More of them. Bert Wilson wailed. More of them, Bert Wilson wailed, holding his head desperately. More of them like the one we burned. Oh, God, we're never going to see the end of this. All I want to do is just go back to my nice, peaceful life and have a nice, peaceful Fourth of July barbecue. His voice trailed off in abject misery. The pounding and screaming kept up outside for several long seconds. Everybody watched the steel door shuddering as it took blow after blow. Is it going to hold, Meat asked. Put something against it, said Scuzz. My supply cabinet, said Ernie. He and Bert helped Meat and Scuzz shove the heavy piece of furniture across the concrete floor. When they got it jammed tightly against the door, the pounding and screaming seemed to diminish, but they couldn't tell if that was because the ghouls were giving up or because some of the sound was now blocked out. Suddenly, both Freddie and Frank groaned in unison, their voices hoarse and raspy like death rattles, and everybody else in the room whirled and stared at them. Struck by the eerie realization about how much of how much they sounded like the beings tr outside trying to get in. Tina kept her arm around Freddie, though. She was going to stick by him through thick or thin. Scuzz ran his fingers through his mohawk haircut, some of the dye coming off of on his hand. Staring at the greenness, he said, man, this dye isn't supposed to run. It's that freaking rain. My skin still stings, man. So does mine, said Ernie. Mine, too, meat drawled his black eyes. Ugh. His, I mean, so, Russo, man. His, uh, what? Oh, I, I see what he meant by that. Okay, never mind. <laughs> um, his black eyes flashing angrily as he turned them upon Burt Wilson. I just remembered something, man. You said you burned one of those ghouls. I think you know more than you're telling. You better open up, man. All of us are in this together, and all our lives might depend on our understanding of this of the true situation. Yeah, I think you better tell us what's going on, Scuzz demanded. We didn't have to tell you anything, Bert snapped. Freddie let out a horrible groan. Tell them, he rasped feebly. They have a right to know. Tina spoke up with righteous indignation. What did you do to my boyfriend? What's wrong with him and Frank? On cue, Frank rasped. Tell them, Bert, it's the least you can do giving in bert let his hands fall weakly to his sides slapping his thighs <sighs> it's a it, it's a chemical he chokingly admitted some kind of chemical that i guess uh, i don't know i guess it can make corpses come back to life there was a long silence and then meat spoke up chemical what chemical bert backed away shaking his head 
scared that scuzz and neat might punch him out. I, I don't know what the chemical, I, I don't know what chemical. I'm not even sure about its properties. It was developed for the U.S. Army. You don't know shit from Shinola. <laughs> you don't know shit from Shinola about it, Neat scrawled. But yet you do know it makes corpses come back to life. Yeah, I can see a military use for it, Scuzz jeered. We could just let all our soldiers attack right out in the open, hoping that they'd get killed so they'd be buried behind enemy lines. Then when the coast was clear, they could come back to life and launch a surprise attack from deep within enemy territory. It'd be better than dropping in paratroopers, he snickered at the absurdity and the horrendous plausibility of the scenario. Now, that is so interesting. I wonder if, I wonder if, John Penny or whoever read that or read that from the script and then use that in the idea of Return of Living Dead Part 3 because here's Russo talking about it several years prior and it's actually a really great idea and you would imagine that that's actually the purpose for Trioxin. That is the true purpose. The marijuana was just the cover-up and the true purpose was this very thing. It was It's an Agent Orange element I mean, that's great. That is really, really great. I forgot that was in here. And it makes it just makes complete and total sense. You just totally would imagine that the that the government um that doesn't look at people as people and just looks at them as a commodity would in fact do that. Expose uh or you know, let let soldiers just, you know, crawl up hamburger hill, get mowed down, and then dump the gas on the battlefield and turn the soldiers uh, you know give them the incentive uh, of, of brain capsules or something. I don't know. Great idea, John Russo. I mean, that, if that is John Russo, I, I mean, just excellent. And I'll say one other thing too, before we continue on, it's reading this chapter right now that I realize how much, um, you know, we thought Daniel Bannon, Daniel Bannon's story is supposed to be a page one rewrite essentially, but it really does borrow heavily from, Night of Living Dead in this once you get to this part of the story where you have, you know, the punks and the uh the squares uh trapped together in a in a situation in a house in a, in a, in, a, in the funeral home. And that is just pure Night of Living Dead. That's the, the core of Night of Living Dead. So it, it's great. It's just freaking great. Um, but you can see it. I, I just realized that you can see at its core, that's what it is. Shut up, Scuzz, Meat said, still eyeing Bert. What I want to know is how the fuck did this chemical get all over the freaking graveyard? I don't know, Bert said. All I can tell you is that we were storing it. You need a medical supply. And these two geniuses, he gestured at Frank and Freddie. They managed to open up a drum and let some of the stuff escape. Tina gasped. Is that why? Is that why Freddie's sick? Sick? She stammered, hugging him more tightly. This is all starting to make a... Oh, sorry, that was me. This is all starting to make a weird kind of sense, Meat exclaimed, coming over to Freddy and peering at him very closely. I breathed it, Meat, Freddy whispered with great difficulty. So did Frank. What did you do, Meat wanted to know. What did it do to you, Meat wanted to know. I'm freezing. My muscles are sniffing up, stiffening up. Oh, Freddy! cried Tina, bursting into tears. His professional curiosity aroused. Ernie Coltenburner blotted rain from his face with a paper towel and knelt in front of Fred Freddie and Frank. Stiffening up how, he asked. Well, first, said Freddie, I got a really 
really terrible headache. Or as he says in the movie, I got a fucked headache. Then my stomach, my stomach's cramped up into a knot. And now my arms and my legs are cramping. Let me see, said Ernie. He tried flexing one of Freddy's arms. Oh, God, that hurts. Oh, God. Freddy groaned. Frank rasped. Hey, take it easy on the kid. Do you feel the same way as he does? Ernie probed. Frank nodded weakly. Both he and Freddy were still sitting half doubled up. Both still looked very gray with yellowish bloodshot eyes. Ernie rubbed his chin as he stared at him. What's the matter? Tina asked, alarm, alarmed at Ernie's knowing expression. Ah, I hate to say it, he told her, but it sounds to me like rigor mortis is setting in. Tina's eyes widened as she bit her lip to hold her fear. Ernie said, help me get your boyfriend's shirt off. Tina helped Ernie slip off the yellow T-shirt with the slogan, I got my shit together. Freddie screamed and complained the whole time. I'm trying to be gentle, honey, Tina said. Ernie pointed at some big purple bruises on Freddie's back. I thought so, he said. Liver mortis. What's, what's that? Tina said aghast. Those purple bruises, Ernie explained. Gravity makes the blood pool up when it's not circulating. Cripes, Scuzz exploded. You're dead, Freddy, and you're going to turn into them. Everybody except Tina started backing away from Freddy and Frank. No, rasped, rat, Freddy rasped weakly. No, God, no. Meantime, the white ambulance was out in the lot with its door open on the passenger side. Several corpses were sitting on the wet concrete, slumped against the vehicle like drunken, satiated men. Other ghouls were restless, unfulfilled. In the saving, in the savage competition for the available human flesh, they had not had enough to eat. They stumbled around aimlessly in the rain and the lightning, rasping and moaning, brains brains i love this this stuff because we apart we there's a couple of times we see the ghouls by themselves like send more paramedics but it's usually for like a laugh it's never just to like see how they are like i almost wish that we just got this in the movie it'd be really really great um the fat muddy corpse in the brown suit the one karate kicked earlier by stan feldstein was particularly gluttonous and greedy it sat on the ground holding Stan's partially devoured head and neck in its beer belly of a lap. It munched calmly on the back of Stan's head, getting out the last scraps of brain. The fat, muddy corpse raised its head, wiping its bloody mouth on its mud-caked sleeve and blinked its yellowish pig-like eyes. Blink, blink, yawn. Drawn by the glow of the interior ambulance light, the big fat corpse got slowly to its feet. Oh, this is that scene and wobbled over to the passenger side and with a grunt crawled in the the corpse turned on the radio and picked up the microphone. After some fumbling, it got a voice to come out of the speaker. Rescue 12, rescue 12, rescue 12, rescue 12. The dispatcher said, come in, come in. This is dispatch over. The fat, muddy corpse with the greedy, piggish eyes raised the microphone to its list lips. Hello, dispatch center. The corpse rasped in its choking, injured-sounding tone. 
We're going to need backup at the Colton Burner's funeral home. We have a half dozen badly injured people here. Please send another ambulance as soon as possible. Over. Roger, will do, the, dash, the dispatcher said. Over. Smiling a sinister smile, the fat, muddy corpse hung up the microphone. His beating eyes gleamed dully dully in the glow of the and he loves saying the glow of the interior light as he got out and slammed the ambulance door he gazed across the dark rainy lot towards the nightlight over the embalming room door where the other ghouls had stopped pounding and were starting to shuffle slowly with a common purpose towards the front of the funeral home where entry might be more easily gained the sight of the nightlight still burned giving the fat uh sorry the sight of the nightlight still burning gave the fat corpse an idea he looked out towards the street at the telephone pole with the cable that led from the pole to the funeral home then he waddled to the low point of the power line at the side of the building ignoring the brief violent flurry of electrical sparks he pulled the cable down with satisfaction he noted that the nightlight and all the other lights of the funeral home went out so again, absolutely terrifying, showing the intelligence of these, you know, of these, these corpses. And, you know, uh, frankly, I mean, the scene of the movie is funny and we love it. And it's, it's ever so brief. This is more drawn out, but I think I like this a lot better. So point point on Russo's side. Wow. Uh, and it's terrifying. Again, Corpses are smart. Why don't they drive? I mean, one of them has to know how to operate the ambulance. Why not just drive it, try to crash it into the funeral home to get all the tasty bits out? You know, clam, you know, smash, smash in the clam on your tummy. Uh, chapter 15. When the lights went out, Ernie was in the process of dialing the police. Everything went black and the phone went dead. And Ernie yelled, don't panic. Everybody stay where you are so you don't go stumbling into each other. I've got candles in my supply cabinet. Groping his way between the embalming tables, he made it to the heavy piece of furniture that they had used to help barricade the door. He knelt and felt for the correct drawer, pulled it out and found candles and matches. Thank God, Tina said when the first match was struck. Everybody else's eyes immediately went to Freddie and Frank to make sure they were still in the same place and still harmless. We'll have to keep a watch on those two, yelled Bert. Ernie's candles were the kind in glass jars. He got three of them going and set them up strategically around the room, two on the embalming tables and one on the middle shelf of the supply cabinet so that illumination was fairly and evenly spread. Meanwhile, mass hysteria started to set in. We got to get out of here, said Scuzz. Fucking A, said Meat. Anybody here got a car? The Unita van, said the Unita van, said Bert. But I don't have the keys. They must still be in Frank's pocket. Frank? Frank rasped and groaned something indecipherable. He's no friggin' help, Meat yelled. He's practically one of those things. Remember what you said, Scuzz? Behind enemy lines? Yeah, we got two in our mist, said Scuzz, fearfully eyeing Freddy and Frank. Better watch who you put your arms around, Tina. Whatever they got could be catching. You want to start turning into something like sunshine? Freddy's going to get well, Tina said defiantly. And what if he don't? scuzz challenged he'll be eating on your brain said meat bert wilson turned towards ernie who had drawn his luger and was staring at it listen Ernie, bert whispered sliding closer 
I'm scared to try and take the van key out of Frank's pocket. No telling what he's liable to do. Do you have your car? Listen up, everybody, Ernie bellowed, taking command. I have a car out there in the lot, but I don't think it'll do us any good. He paused to allow their uproar to simmer to a low babble. He held up his Luger, pointing it at the ceiling. I was out there, remember? This gun was useless. I shot one of those things in the head, and it didn't even phase it. The parking lot is crawling with them. And in the rain and the dark, we never get through them. They'd lurk in the shadows, and then they would mob us. I suggest we try fortifying this place and sticking it out until help comes. I want to split, yelled Scuzz. If you want to stay, then... If you want to stay, then give me your car keys and the rest of us will go get our asses in gear. I'm not deserting. I'm not deserting, Freddy, said Tina. You really are a dumb broad. You know that, said Meat. Meat told her. <laughs> he turned to the other, shouting, who's all for cutting out with me and Scuzz? I'm not turning over my keys, said Ernie, covering Scuzz and Meat with his Luger. Maybe bullets won't work on them, but they will still work on you. This is great. Like, like uh conflict russo great this is great you pull that shit you better not take your eyes off of us meat warned just then a siren wailed in the distance and he cuts the tension with with the siren wailing in the distance it's great just then a siren wailed in the distance and they all listened keenly as if it might mean salvation the cops bert the cops bert blurted his eyes lit up with hopefulness it's got to be the cops we're going to be rescued. The siren got louder and closer. Then tires, spelled T-Y-R-E-S, because this is the British book. Then tires screeched and doors slammed and the siren stopped wailing. Sounds like they're out front, yelled Meat. Let's go. He snatched one of Ernie's jarred candles from an embalming table. Man, I never thought I'd be so happy to see the fuzz, Scuzz enthused, following Meat towards the stairs. Tina, stay here with Freddie and Frank, Ernie instructed Bert and I will go up and help check check it out in case those other two decide to just cut and run he knelt pulled he knelt pulled a big metal flashlight from the bottom drawer of his supply cabinet and clicked it on the four men the four men got up to the foyer just as a brick shattered one of the glass doors in the reddish strobing light of the ambulance parked out front ghastly figures were clamoring to get in screaming brains 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 there was so much of a mob on the porch that the ambulance itself could not be seen one of the corpses reached through the broken glass not caring that his flesh was lacerated as he tried to push down on the metal bar that would have opened the door from the inside shining his flashlight on the dead groping arm ernie smashed and smashed at it with the barrel of his luger repeatedly hammering the rotted wrist and forearm against the jagged slash of glass that remained intact the dead hand fell off twitching on the rug the corpse retreated staring dumbly at the shredded stump of a forearm then other corpses also backed away not so much out of fear, apparently, but rather because they were drawn towards the strobing light of the ambulance. The dead had continued to twitch until Ernie rolled up in a carpet runner and shoved it out. Sorry. The dead had continued to twitch until Ernie rolled it up in a carpet carpet runner and shoved it out through the hole in the door. Then he shined. What does that mean? The dead had continued to twitch until Ernie rolled it up. 
I guess he plugged the hole. Then he shined a flashlight out onto the lawn. Douse that light, man, Ernie yelled. Them things is like moth. They're attracted to light, man. No, that's not what's attracting them to the ambulance, Ernie replied in a low, fearful tone. He kept shining his light out there, and the other three men edged closer to have a look. The ravenous ghouls had mobbed the two paramedics that had arrived in the new ambulance. It seemed clear now that the ones on the porch had been drawn away by the scent of freshly butchered human meat. The ghouls were moaning and snarling, fighting each other for a share of the meal. The skulls of the two paramedics had already been broken open and their torsos had been gutted. Now their flesh and vital organs were being bitten and ripped by sharp teeth and clawing hands. Oh my God, said Bert. They're going to kill everybody who comes here. Sickened, he backed away from the door and leaned against a chair, trying not to gag. Ernie pulled his flashlight away from the hole in the glass door. Now do you two guys see why it would be foolhardy to try and make a break for it? He asked Meat and Scuzz. Badly shaken, they slowly nodded their heads. All right, said Ernie. So let's dig in and fortify. Help me move this. Meat, Scuzz, and Bert helped Ernie shove a heavy leather couch against the glass entrance doors. Then they all pitched in and stacked a couple of armchairs on top of the sofa. It won't keep them out, said Ernie, if they make a determined mass assault, but it'll delay them and buy us some time. I have some hammers and spikes downstairs in my workroom. Maybe they're calling them spikes because that's what they call them in, in England. We've got to board up all the doors and the windows so they can't get in no matter how hard they try. What if they try to burn us out, said Bert. What if they try to burn us out? I'm so bad at this, said Bert. I have a hunch they won't, Ernie replied with a confidence that he did not entirely feel. Dead flesh burns easier than live than live flesh, he told the others in order to bolster their courage. Cops are bound to come sooner or later, Bert said. The cops are bound to come sooner or later, Bert said. Two teams of paramedics aren't going to be reporting back to their stations or showing up at the hospital. Cops are bound to eventually come and look for them. On on the hopeful note. On that hopeful note, the group pulled together into a cohesive unit, ready and willing to cooperate in a survival effort. Burton Scuzz agreed to go guard the inadequately fortified front doors while Ernie and Meat went downstairs to the workroom to get hammers, spikes, and wood for barricades. In the embalming room, Ernie stopped to make sure that Tina was okay and to have a look at Frank and Freddie, who were still sick and gray and dead-looking. What had happened there? What happened up there? Tina asked worriedly. I heard such an awful racket. She was still staying loyally beside her boyfriend, her arm around his shoulders. Everything's under control, Ernie assured her. But it was touch and go for a while. Bert and Scuzz are keeping watch. Two more paramedics got gobbled up, Meat said. Oh my God, said Tina. In the flickering candlelight, Ernie peered closely at the two sick, chemically infected men to see if meets tactless command comment sorry ernie peered closely at the two sick chemically infected men to see if meets tactless comment might stimulate them in some telltale way like causing them to drool for instance but they remained slumped inert and inscrutable we better get our, we better get our asses humping meat said what's your tools man Shining the way with his flashlight, Ernie led him down a corridor through the coffin display room and into the adjoining workroom. 
Here, there was a bench with a vise, a toolbox, and a pegboard. Ernie rummaged in the toolbox while Meat grabbed stuff from the pegs. They armed themselves with hammers, screwdrivers for stabbing would-be attackers, a hatchet, a chisel, a coil of rope and some tape, and a big box of nails. Ernie Kaltenburner couldn't help pondering the irony of his present situation. He who had made a career of uh, he who had made a career of which he was proud uh, proud out of making corpses pretty and lifelike was now battling to stop them from making him ugly and dead. Let me take that line one more time. He who had made a career of which he was proud of making corpses pretty and lifelike was now battling to stop them from making him ugly and dead. It didn't seem like proper gratitude on their part. If they had, if they could only realize how much he had done for them, they probably would have left him alone. Grant him some sort of amnesty. Let him work in peace. If he had ever gotten out of this mess alive, how could he continue in his profession with the same aesthetic attitude he had hitherto enjoyed? How could he look another deceased person in the eyes without wondering what the deceased might turn into? He wouldn't feel comfortable unless he cremated everybody. And even then, who could say what goofy, malevolent chemical properties might remain in the smoke and the ashes? The other major irony pertaining to this crazy crisis, so far as Ernie was concerned, was that he was showing some guts and leadership for the first time in his life. Good for you, Ernie. Um, he was proving to himself that he could take charge over something besides condolences and regrets. The others were following him, depending on his advice, drawing sustenance from his fortitude and resourcefulness. And it wasn't just because he had a gun. No, they sensed that he had seized command of the situation because he sensed it in because because he sensed it himself. He was radiating something new, self-confidence. All of a sudden, he, Ernie Coltonburner, High school nobody, middle-aged bachelor, secretly a Nazi, <laughs> near virgin, ubiquitous funeral director, obsequious funeral director, had emerged as somebody worthy of respect, maybe even admiration. He liked what he had discovered about himself. He liked it so much that even if there ceased to be any more dead people in the conventional sense, as if consequence, his profession would cease to be meaningful and necessary he knew he would find some other and perhaps grander way of fulfilling his creative urges listening to the new sound of authority in his own voice he told meat we'll have to come back down for lumber those planks and two by fours in the coffin room we can break some up we can break up some of the coffins too if we have to i guess ain't nobody going to be needing them if they won't if they won't stay dead meat said with a grim chuckle Ernie was showing meat the way up the steps, balancing a load of tools while directing the flashlight beam, when suddenly a loud, agonizing scream echoed down the staircase. Meat froze and then started to back away from the horrible sound, but Ernie urged him on. Drop everything but your hammer. Let's go. Behind meat, Ernie discarded all he was carrying except the flashlight and hatchet as he ran up the stairs. They burst into the foyer, lit only by an overturned candle in a jar, and saw Bert and Scuzz in a life-and-death fight with two ghouls, which happened to be Morton and Helen Dowden. Stunned. And this never, when I first read this, oh my God, my toes have fallen asleep, and it's really hard to, 
concentrate. I'm doing the best I can with my numb with my numb toes. Um, I never liked this part because it doesn't make sense at all plot wise, like the mythology, the rules, the rules. Morton and Helen Dowd Dowden shouldn't be affected. Stunned, Ernie almost didn't recognize them at first because he didn't want to believe what he was seeing, even when the flashlight beam struck their twisted, groaning, struggling faces. Only a few hours ago, he had been massaging the banker and his wife, breaking out the rigor mortis, and now here they were alive again and out of their coffins. Scuzz was screaming because Helen Dowden was biting into his mohawk skull while Bert was punching her, trying to pull her off. Morton Dowden his legs only partially usable because his torso had, torso had been cut in two and then stitched and harnessed back together by Ernie was crawling on the floor trying to help his dead wife by tackling Bert's ankles. But Morton had to grope to find the right hole because he was blind. His eyelids had been glued shut. Scuzz screeched, make it, make it let go, make it let go. The stitches had been ripped loose from one of Helen Dowden's sewed on hands and it was twitching on the floor. With her forearms, she had scuzz in a chokehold and tight and tightened her jaws into a bulging knot of muscle. She bit harder into the shaved part of his head. He screamed as his skull gave in with a bony crunching pop. At the same time, Bert went down to Morton Downen's grasp and Morton clawed and groped, rasping brains, brains. Anxious to sink his teeth into Bert's head, but Ernie was 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 wailing with his hatchet, pulling Morton away from Bert and chopping at the place where he had stitched Morton's torso back together. Since instinct told him that this was his former client's most vulnerable spot, Bert scrambled out of the ghoul's reach. Helen was no longer enjoined in the struggle at this point because she was too busy sucking out Scuzz's brain. Ernie yelled. Help me, meet Bert, fetch the rope. Wait, what? Ernie yelled, help me, meet Bert, fetch the rope we dropped on the steps. Glad of the chance to bolt out of there, Bert snatched up the flashlight and skedaddled. Ernie kept on chopping and chopping at Morton down, and meat started pounding his hammer on Morton's arms, keeping him from clawing at Ernie. Helen leaned in a corner, watched a black, what, sorry, Helen leaned in Helen leaned in a corner, watching a blank, satiated look in her eyes as she continued to munch on Scuzz's brain. And that brings us to the end of chapter 15. Oh, boy. So things really kick up a, a notch. Like we said, there's a, a unexplained, in an unexplained twist, um, Helen and Morton are also reanimated despite never coming in contact with 254 trioxin. I don't, I still don't understand it. I still don't get it, even reading, rereading it now. I mean, whatever. Probably the weakest part of the story. But I got to tell you, these two chapters were pretty freaking great. And, and Russo's descriptions and coming up with that very creative way, uh, thing that theory that, that Scuzz mentions. I mean, it's, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Um, I hope you enjoyed this chapter. Tune in next week for another chapter of the return of the living dead. We will see you then. Peace and hair grease.